right, welcome to the Public Health Pharmacist podcast. This is another episode focusing on COVID-19 and just candid conversations um, regarding, you know, people's experiences with um, how we're now living in this new world post-pandemic. So today I have a very special guest, my friend and colleague who I've known for, oh my gosh, going on almost two decades now. Mm-hmm. Uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Katherine Smith. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and let her introduce herself um, because she has so many titles and so many accolades. But we are going to have a very frank discussion um, considering the fact that both of us are travel buddies and we've, uh, we've gone multiple places all over the world. And I just want to talk a little bit about her recent experience traveling during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and specifically traveling in Asia. So, Dr. Smith. Yeah. Hey. So, yeah, I'm Katherine Smith. I um, am a clinical pharmacist and associate professor of pharmacy practice at Rosemead University. And I practice clinical pharmacy at a free clinic in Park City, Utah. It's called People's Health Clinic. And it's also a training site for pharmacy residents. And that about sums it up. I've been there about 10 years, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we've worked together for years, mm-hmm. mainly in the aspect of doing vaccination trainings for Perfect. our pharmacists. So you and I both, um, uh, we used to work on the same campus um, at yep. Rosen, but then you decided to go to the South Jordan campus. And yep. um, we remained friends um, because we really got along super well and actually have gone on multiple international trips together. So uh, the reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast is because of the fact that you've recently traveled and just wanted to talk a little bit about what that experience was like, um, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, things are so fluid and they're changing all the time. And I feel like day to day things Mm -hmm. are changing. Um, so I'd really like to get your opinion, considering the fact that you recently came back from traveling in Asia. So yeah. tell us yeah. a little bit about that experience. Yeah, so um, I it was a vacation trip. It was not like for work or anything. And I went to Australia to play some water polo, to do some hiking. And, you know, it's basically the end of their summer and all this time I'd been so worried about air quality and fires and things like that. That was kind of the story of Australia uh, for a big part of December and January. And then, um, you know, looking at the fact that I would be flying through Singapore both directions and then would also have a layover in Tokyo on the way home, um, I started keeping a closer eye on the uh, coronavirus situation and how that would impact travel through Asia. And just so, yeah. Mind saying like what date this was, just so people yeah. understand kind of what time frame this was in relation to mm-hmm. when we kind of saw the epicenter kind of explode with cases. Right, right. So I left um, the U.S. via LAX uh, on February seventeenth. Okay. So that's when I left, and I, I'm. I definitely had questions 
when I arrived in Singapore about whether I had been in China or not. Um, but that was about it um, in terms of like anybody asking me anything about my travel history. So they weren't doing like a symptom screening? Were they doing temperature checks at that point? Yeah, they were. So when I got off the plane in Singapore, I had about a, I don't know, three or four hour layover. So um, the plan was to go into the terminal and explore or whatever, but everybody coming out of their gates and into the sort of main international terminal in Singapore was um, subject to temperature screening. So kind of off the That's side. Cool. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no, so it was kind of, and it was very unobtrusive. So they didn't like stop you or anything. You just basically walked past them and they had these, these like almost kind of camera things. They were probably like, I don't know, maybe six or seven feet off the ground. And they were just pointed at everybody who was walking by. And then there were maybe three or four people on each side that were um, looking at a monitor that I assume would tell them, you know, whether somebody had a, a temperature or not or elevated temperature. So was so, it like a screener? Were they like wearing masks? Were they doing any like special precautions? They were all wearing masks, every single person who was part of this temperature screening thing. Plus just random people in the airport. I'd say it was probably about maybe 60, 40 in terms of the percentage wearing masks versus the people not wearing masks. Wow, in that's so airport. You've traveled in Asia before. I mean, can you contrast the difference between traveling in COVID-19 mm -hmm. versus traveling in the past? Yeah, so um, you and I went to Tokyo, I don't remember what year that was, like 2012 or 13? I can't remember, but been a while. Anyway. So I believe it was 2015. Because it 2015. was before I got pregnant with my first child and he was yes. only four. Okay, right, right, that's right, yep. Yeah, so I remember just walking around, like, you know, the very kind of... Um, busy city streets of Tokyo and seeing people walking around with masks on and they would sell masks in convenience stores like some were very fashionable some were not and we, when we kind of learned about the culture there we learned that people would generally wear masks when they felt the slightest bit under under the weather because they didn't want to infect anybody else because that's kind of part of their culture it's a more kind of um what's the word uh like you kind of see yourself as a member of a community and you don't want to be a burden to your community. Exactly, yeah. So yeah, that was kind of my first exposure to walking around and seeing people wearing masks on the street in summertime. So this was, what, uh, June or July or so was when we went? Yeah, it was the 4th of July week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just very different circumstance. So in general, I think sort of the um, the look of people wearing masks is not unusual in Asia because right. they are in such like high congregate settings and because a lot mm -hmm. of people take public transportation. And so, yep. and, you know, that's the culture. If you feel sick or ill, like you put your mask on because we want to make sure that we're protecting everyone else around us. Mm -hmm. um, how the masks are intended to be used. Um, yeah. It's not really meant to be used by the general population that's not sick or ill or I mean, suppressed, right? Right, yeah. Although when I went through Singapore, 
um, I got a different feeling. Like I felt like people were more kind of con thinking about protecting themselves versus being sick and protecting the community. Because there's no way that many people were sick in Singapore. <laughs> they just yeah, weren't. Almost just like everybody wears a mask because you're like guilty until proven innocent, right? Because now right. you know that there's this potential for people to even be able to spread COVID-19 even if they're asymptomatic or have no fever. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so some of the recent reports that I've seen is that you know, and part of the reason why we're doing all this social distancing and sort of the, or social separation right now and not having physical contact is because yeah. we don't want to unduly infect, you know, the elderly or the most vulnerable because we don't know if people may be asymptomatic carriers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, that's really interesting that you're seeing more people wearing, um, well, we, um, when you were traveling and this team mm -hmm. was over six weeks ago now, mm -hmm. they were doing all that. So that, it's very interesting because I feel like we're about a month and a half behind with where yeah. it is now. Because mm -hmm. recently, you know, China just um, stated that they had had no new cases of, right. of coronavirus, specifically COVID-19, mm -hmm. um, the past, you know, 24 yeah. hours, they've been no new cases. So it's good to see that they're kind of on the other side, but then also yeah. like, they took some pretty extreme measures over there. And I mean, obviously, you know, from just yeah. travel experience, right? Right. So when I said to folks that I was going through Singapore, like I was a little worried, but I got notes from or messages from people who had traveled more extensively and were in Asia and were more familiar with Singapore. They were like, oh, do not worry about Singapore. Like they're going to have things under control. And I was like, oh, OK, well, that's good. <laughs> so, yeah. So what are you experiencing now living in Utah and in the Salt Lake area? I feel like you guys have kind of been hit particularly hard in addition to like now being under some, you know, extraordinary measures for COVID-19. You guys recently had a pretty big earthquake, right? We did. Yeah, we had an earthquake on mm, Wednesday because that was the day that my daughter was supposed to start her online school stuff and then that got pushed back another day because of the earthquake wow yeah i feel like these are just um unexpected times right now we just mm -hmm. so in uncharted territory so kind of in those same lines um you know we both teach for college pharmacy we both teach yep. for an allied health professional school um, mm -hmm. you know, what are your thoughts about now having to transition our students to online learning and sort of mm -hmm. how we're adapting as healthcare professionals and educators now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think it's good because I think it, there's ways that we can still make sure our students are getting a good experiential learning um, um, exposure, I guess, um, using telehealth, using access to electronic medical records, so um, I have a student uh, starting with me on, not this Monday, but next Monday. And the plan is to meet with them virtually, give them access to our medical record, ask them to come up with recommendations. We discuss them over web conference. And then, um, you know, they can write notes in the medical record and be part of um, healthcare basically without putting themselves at risk um you know which is great um because 
our our clinic is not that close to South Jordan, so there's also the they won't have to travel um, as far. It's about 45 minutes away. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of really looking forward to this experiment, you know, just to see how it works. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, one thing I will say about you is that you've always really been on the forefront of technology, like ever since I met you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I, like, I remember vividly you and I being in a hotel room in Montreal and you telling me about <laughs> TED Talks and I'm like, what's a TED Talk? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> and just like fast forward now to 2020 mm -hmm. and recently attended the TEDx conference in Reno. So wow. like, with COVID-19, now <laughs> that we're seeing, you know, more preventative care measures, what are you guys doing at your clinic and are you still engaging in patient care considering mm -hmm. the current you know recommendations and mm -hmm. I mean obviously you work in a free clinic I work in a free clinic yeah I know how difficult it is to get care to those patients so, yeah you know limiting it or maybe discontinuing it just doesn't really seem like a great option um, right you know, I was just at Volunteers in Medicine this week and they just made the decision to close until the 30th. Whoa. I was a little bit like, oh my gosh, what are these patients going to do about their meds? But, you know, that's a decision that they decided to make um, just because mm -hmm. of the closures that our governor asked of us, you know, right. all non-essential businesses until, um, you, know, the, you know, 30 days. So, yeah. So what are you guys doing um, at your clinic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, for now we're still open, and um, our schedules are full basically. Um, but we have had to put a lot of precautions in place to keep our staff safe um, and our volunteers safe as well. So, um, because, and and unfortunately, we're kind of learning along the way because we had a bit of an issue. Um, I guess it was maybe a little over a week ago, where a patient came in. They were stopped by a um, vital signs volunteer asked about symptoms, asked about contacts, and they said basically no to everything, right? So they proceeded through vital signs and then they went into, um, they were put in a room where they would meet with a provider. And upon meeting with the provider, they told a different story about their COVID-19 risk. Oh, wow. So yeah, so that meant that, um, they sent that patient off to get tested. Um, that was on a Friday. The patient tested positive on a Monday. And uh, so the providers were considered low risk based on, I'm not sure if it was because of maybe equipment they were wearing or just how close they were to the patient. Um, but the vital signs volunteer was considered medium risk. So that person was put on 14 day quarantine. So we lost a vital signs volunteer because somebody decided to not be truthful up front unfortunately wow that's incredible i mean it's just it just goes to show you like you know i think that people maybe just don't want to disclose because they're concerned about the limitations in care that they're going to receive right right yeah they don't want to be told to like go somewhere else call this number you know because that's what happens you know wow i mean it's different times, but you know what? I feel like I've had similar experiences when I'm dealing with other communicable infectious diseases. So, mm -hmm. so I deal a lot with patients who are at risk for um, spectrum transmitted infections. Mm -hmm. 
And I've had many a time where I've had a patient who we originally assess and we ask them what their risk factors are. And they're like, no, 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 I use condoms all the time. No problem. Like, oh no, I only have the one partner. And then we take them back to the room and then it's like the floodgates open up and they're like, oh my God. So I had this partner, this partner, this partner. And Mm -hmm. so I I have sex with women, but I mean, it's more with, you know, people who identify as women. So mm-hmm. trans women, you know, like right, right. all kinds of things that people, I think sometimes don't disclose because of whatever reason. Stigma, you name it. Yeah. So, wow. That's so, I mean, you know, we're, we're really good friends and mm-hmm. you know, we both have kids. We both have husbands. Yep. What are, I mean, how do you feel about being on the front line right now? I mean, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts about, you know, are we putting ourselves at undue risk? Yeah. You know, what are your thoughts about that? Right, right. Yeah, we kind of had to have that conversation today a little bit, um, just because we don't know how overwhelmed our healthcare system is going to become, right? So. Um, I had not been going to clinic. Part of it was that I've been out of town for quite a long period of time and I'm just kind of getting back into it. But there's a lot I can do patient care wise from home. Um, I have asthma, I've had asthma since high school. And a few times I've had really bad viral infections. I have been, um, have needed to go to the hospital. So I have that concern in the back of my mind. So I'm kind of treating myself a little with some care in that regard knowing that you know we don't really know what's going to walk in the door at this point in our clinic you know so uh because summit county was the first county in utah to have community spread so yeah we're kind of right there yeah so is there anything so if you do go to clinic is there Mm -hmm. anything special that you're gonna maybe try to do are you gonna be more like back office like is there you know are you going to try to avoid direct contact is there anything that you've decided that you're just going to try to do while you're there or yeah um I don't know I'm going to try to avoid needing to physically be there as long as I possibly can you know um yeah the resident I have with me is um not on rotation with me right now so um, I'm kind of keeping an eye on things with her because I'm also her residency director. So I want to make sure that she feels comfortable and um, and she's still getting the learning experience that she needs to get while she's there. So we talk like all the time, just checking in, you know, all that good stuff. Um, she has children with asthma herself and a husband with MS. He's not currently on immunosuppressants, but, you know, you never know. So anyway, yeah, exactly, exactly. So we're really trying to make sure everybody is able to do what they can, but, you know, considering their own needs and concerns as well. So um, I'm going to give you one more question and then I'll let you go be with your family. Um, Thank you so much again for taking Mm -hmm. your time. So considering the fact that we both work for colleges of pharmacy and mm-hmm. the match just came out. Yeah. Now we have students that are two months from graduation that are yeah. now getting, you know, turned away from their practice sites, not 
potentially being able to finish their rotations and get their clinical hours, mm -hmm. see as being potential, you know, pitfalls or, you know, complications associated with our profession. Mm -hmm. Now we may be looking at a scenario where there may be students that are forced to graduate late or potentially not mm -hmm. able to get licensed and how that may impact their residency. And yeah. then how is that maybe going to impact the next group of students who may not be able to start their rotation? So I just kind of mm -hmm. wanted to see what your thoughts were on that because I think yeah. it's the forefront of a lot of pharmacy educators' minds right now. Right, right. Yeah, because right now the impact is potentially like really big, you know. Um, when we first learned early this week that one of our major practice sites in Utah had sent all the students home, this is like the largest health system in Utah, basically. Like, so across the state, they'd sent all the students home. Um, it was kind of like, oh no, you know. That was pharmacy, right? That was all allied health professional students? Correct. Yeah, not oh, just so pharmacy. Like medicine residents, PA, nurse mm -hmm. practitioner, like respiratory, that's everybody? Yeah, but like student level. So not residents, but like oh, okay. medical students, nursing students, pharmacy students, etc. Yeah. So, um, yeah, anyway, um, we thought that this was kind of like a one-off, but now we're learning that this is happening all over the country, right? So with it happening all over the country, you have to kind of figure that there may be exceptions made, you know, with either the um, accrediting body deciding kind of who's qualified to graduate uh, with the state boards of pharmacy deciding how many hours you need in order to practice, to get licensed, things like that. I'm sure that there'll have to be some flexibility um, I don't know. It, it's going to be very interesting because I think everybody's hoping that by the summer everything's going to be kind of back to normal. We'll just be a few months behind, but that's not necessarily going to be the case. We really don't know where we're going to be this summer. So, yeah, I mean, there's no guarantee. <laughs> I mean, if people don't heed these warnings and don't actually do the social distancing and stay home, we're right. not going to be able to flatten the curve. We're not going to be able to slow the spread of the virus, and it's going to be widespread and it's going to overwhelm our healthcare systems. I mean, look at what's mm -hmm. happening in New York right now. They don't yep. have enough hospital beds, they don't have enough ventilators, like they're being inundated. And that's, yeah. not, that's not a foreign country. That's like, across you know like that's across the country like that's not that far away you know, I know. well and you know it seems like you know china is this very foreign place but you know what they do a lot of the same things we do you know they have pharmacy schools and they have training you know at hospitals and things like that so it might be interesting to reach out to some of these colleagues and find out how did this impact you what did you guys do about it you know because it can't be that they didn't deal with any of this, you know, it's, it's just not possible. You know, one of the the best videos that I watched and sort of trying to un, like wrap my head around this whole thing was a, a it was like a documentary, it's on YouTube, that just kind of walked you through a month in Wuhan. And it was so good, yeah. I know you sent that to me, it's pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah. So, I, that's what I would recommend is sort of learn from China because I think there's a ton to learn there.
Yeah, there's lots of, you know, um, studies looking at, uh, you know, potential treatment options. You know, we heard, you know, with the president's press conference about, you know, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine mm -hmm. and then Redemisvir, which is um, a drug that was being originally marketed for SARS and then, you know, convalescent plasma use. So I, I know that there's a lot of things on the horizon. It's just yeah. a lot of people who are afraid and then we just we lack PPE, like we have no PPE mm -hmm. for people who are on the front lines, and it's a little bit scary. Like I think about yeah. what we did during Ebola, and I know. yeah, never in a million years would have thought, oh, we don't have enough personal protective equipment. Like that, oh, was I never even anything that anybody would have considered being a possibility. So no. it's just we're we're on uncharted territory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think we'll get there with the PPE in the next couple of weeks or so. My concern is that the hospital cases will start to ramp up before we get there on the PPEs. But from what I've seen in various like graphs and predictions and calculators, you know, if, if everybody, if all cities become like San Francisco, basically, we, it won't be an issue because, yeah, because the shelter in place stuff is expected to work if the shelter in place happens early enough, right? Yeah, so do you want to explain that a little bit for people who maybe are not familiar with that, um, what they're doing in San Francisco? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, under shelter in place, my understanding is that you are allowed to go outside uh, to walk your dog, to go pick up groceries, to go pick up medicine. Um, do some kind of exercise but that's the extent of it that you are not to be out you know in groups with other people um that they will basically stop you and issue you a citation um you know which is very different from just recommending people stay six feet apart um they actually are they have an enforcement component to it okay so that's the difference between like what's happening right now which is like you know, non-essential services right. being requested to not operate, and then, you know, no dine-in services for restaurants, and mm -hmm. recommending people to stay home, but there's no enforcement piece. Right. So the difference between, like, what we're being asked to do here in Nevada and in Las Vegas versus what mm -hmm. we're being asked to do in, like, places like San Francisco, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, I swear this is the last question. So, okay. <laughs> considering the fact that now we are seeing these students and trainees being taken out of the workforce, how right. do you see that impacting our ability to respond to COVID-19, considering that mm -hmm. a lot of those jobs that were being done by those trainees are no longer able to be done and now we're having to be burdened upon the people who are are, are left <laughs> i guess is right going with that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's an interesting question i hadn't really thought too much about that um because i'm not clear about how much of that essential work our students could ultimately help with if that right. makes sense you know um because i think what i've learned from italy is that you know, if you're a physician, you're a physician, right? And if they need you to, um, I don't know if they're having like, you know, people who with no experience intubating a patient, intubating a patient, I'm not sure we're talking about that. 
but certainly you know doing some basic medical assessment i think they're kind of all hands on deck basically they've canceled all elective surgeries um yeah so things are kind of they're shifting the role of different medical professionals i just don't know where they would insert students into that mix just not knowing what their experience and comfort level is okay no i mean valid valid point um i don't know i guess my perspective is a little bit different because i've been working in the outpatient center yeah yeah so when i'm looking at it i'm looking at all the assistance that my students gave me when i worked um during h1n1 because i was oh yeah well if you get a vaccine different story entirely Right now, all we have is inpatient care, right? Or just referral to inpatient. But yeah, if we get a vaccine, holy moly, we're going to need all the students we can get. And then I think pharmacists in general, it's interesting. I keep seeing, you know, like, thank your first responders, thank your healthcare professionals, your doctors and your nurses. But like, I I haven't been seeing a lot of pharmacists being mentioned. I have. And considered to be essential services. So it's interesting. I've seen lots of mention of pharmacists in the frontline health providers because people are walking into their pharmacy with their cough and their fever and they're buying over-the-counter drugs and the pharmacist is just a few feet away you know or the technician or the clerk I mean somebody a frontline pharmacy staff is interacting with that person yeah um, over the weekend um, I saw uh, that um, the governor in New York uh, Governor Cuomo he had done a press conference and he listed all of the people, you know, that we should be thanking and yeah. pharmacists was listed. So, yeah, I mean, I think, sure. yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad to see that we're being acknowledged and I'm hoping that maybe this may be the turning point that's necessary for us to maybe be able to practice at the level of our licensure and our expertise because we can really help, mm-hmm. um, you know, get some of those chronic medical conditions handled and they don't um, burden the healthcare system so they can really focus on the pandemic and not have to worry about some of these other things that you know we can really take care of on our own and don't really require a physician to manage well i think public health has been that link for so long you know where public health is like wait we have these frontline like well-trained health providers we need to put them to work and it's the rest of healthcare that's been like what them you mean the person who bugs me when my prescription is not written correctly yeah you know it really requires public health who can kind of think outside the box on healthcare a bit. Yeah, so telehealth, telemedicine, we can do that too, you know? That's right, That's right. absolutely. All right, any other pearls of wisdom you'd like to leave us with, Dr. Smith? Well, I was gonna share what the end of this trip to Australia was like, because okay. this time I went through Tokyo, right? Ooh. Versus the first time I did not, right? So. Um, I had to go from Melbourne to Singapore and Singapore felt the same like nothing really felt any different I certainly got questions about where I traveled and things like that they were doing the temperature screening again it felt the same Um, in Tokyo however I learned that Tokyo had become a level two while I was traveling (laughs) which is crazy because I didn't really plan to come through a level two country right and I didn't even know if I was going to end up getting off the plane, but I did. They they said, okay, we're all getting off the plane now. I'm like, okay. So got off the plane, and I had exactly one hour in the Narita airport. 
And because I was flying business class, just on this little segment, um, I was allowed access to the lounge. Went into the lounge, they had all the like self-service food gone, right? So this was March 3rd, right? So no self-service food. There was either, they could hand you a bowl of ramen that they were making in their sort of restaurant area, or they had prepackaged stuff and that was it. Wow, I mean, at that point, um, you said you were there March 3rd. So at that point, we've actually had the first identified case in the United States at that point. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. Wow. Exactly. So one hour in the airport, and I spent that hour taking a shower, which felt wonderful because it was a very long trip. But anyway, I got back to the US and I was like, wow, I was on an airplane with people coming from Japan who were at level two, which had community spread. And I was like, maybe I need to like really, maybe I'm putting my community at risk just by where I've traveled, right? So I put a sticky note on my door saying that I had traveled through Japan on this date and that I was limiting contact with people, um, just kind of full disclosure kind of thing. And I told this story to a friend of mine and he was like, that's really kind of you. And I was like, it is? <laughs> and this is somebody who works for an airline. So I was like, huh, okay. <laughs> like it felt like the right thing to do at the time, but. Right, no, I mean, that um, seems like a very, I, I just think it's maybe the healthcare professional mind versus. That could be, that could be, yeah. Air travel person mind, you know. Right, 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 right. Well, and he's back end uh, airline industry. He's not a flight attendant or pilot or anything, but yeah. But still, right? Yeah. These are strange times, I will say, but I I thank you so much for, you know, telling us a little bit about your experience. I think, you know, one of the things that I've realized through this whole situation, because I've been following mm -hmm. this since December. So yeah. um, I just happen to like, I was just like looking at my social media feed, just like kind of like be like, oh my gosh, when did I start like looking at this? And I like the very first post that I did um, about the virus when it was still just like brand fake and new and we barely knew anything was like mm -hmm. end of December. So it was like right when we were on our winter break for, for, for school. And I'm just like, man, if I had known then what I knew now, like I would have been way more like upfront and forthcoming about like, hey, this is something to watch. Hey, you know, mm -hmm. this is, you know, definitely something that could you know, develop into a pandemic and like, right. you, need to be, you know, you need to stay informed. You guys need to make sure that you're following this. And, you know, mm -hmm. at the time it was just something that I found because, you know, I love infectious diseases and of course communicable disease. So I was like, Ooh, this is interesting. Totally. Um, so yeah. for me, it was just more of a curiosity, but now it's just turned into this like whole thing where, you know, I'm doing all these media appearances and like, it's, mm -hmm. just, it's really interesting how, you know how needed healthcare professionals are on the front line of you know the actual media appearances right yeah, so like yeah you me like we're working on the front lines like we should be the ones telling our stories that's why i wanted to have you on the podcast yeah the fact that you're a healthcare professional but you're a wife you're a mom and you were a traveler so i just mm -hmm. think all those perspectives are just so important and so necessary right now just to give people perspective um, because, you know, we're going to get through this together and we'll oh, be yeah. on the other side, but it's, we all have to do our part. 
I know. Yeah. Do you know what I'm really thankful for? Yeah. The part of the curriculum in the pharmacist immunization training that includes some stuff about uh, the risk of pandemics. It's, it's already built into that curriculum, you know, and there's a lot of content in there, but um, I've taught this course every year for like forever, decade plus. Um, yeah, so I always remember like, oh yeah, they say the next flu epidemic could happen any day now, right? So I've always had that in the back of my head. Well, we don't know when it's gonna come, you know, and the first time SARS hit, I was like, maybe it would be SARS. And they're like, oh no, it's not SARS because it doesn't seem to spread that readily. But wow, here we are, <laughs> you know, it's a coronavirus. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, I feel very fortunate that uh, not only were you like one of the first persons to encourage me to get my vaccination training while I was a student, but then also when I became faculty, you encouraged me to get my train the trainer training. And so now I think it's great that, you know, these are all skills that are so useful for me. And I just, I can't thank you for your counsel and your mentorship and your friendship enough. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm inspired by everything you've done in public health. I mean, amazing stuff. All right, so um, thank you everyone who is listening. Um, oh, and then we have my daughter here who's decided to join us as well. Thank you for uh, being uh, a, a listener to the podcast. Uh, and then also thank you to our YouTube family for uh, listening as well. Uh, that concludes our uh, second episode of the Public Health Pharmacist podcast. All right, so that was 40 minutes. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, it's okay. Let me hit the stop recording button. No, I'm...